Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think of a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 158 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about how we're right and everyone else is wrong. I'm Karen Peterson, joined as always by my amazing co-host, Lauren Humphreys Brooks. I love these introductions to these episodes. (laughs) I love it. We're right and you're all wrong. And also don't come onto my Twitter feed and lecture me about shit, random man. Mm -hmm, Exactly. But I had the horrifying discovery today, which I think is something I already knew, not today, this week. Um, I think I already knew this, but it was just really sad to see it happening in real time boys it's like this from birth (laughs) they they're like that from birth like little baby children boys are preparing to become the twitter trolls of tomorrow and it just it 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 makes me so sad (laughs) i i think that really what this is saying is that um is that there are many adult men who have not progressed past the age of five and i think that's what's more concerning it's not so much that the kids are are off the mark but it's that the adults never actually get past that (laughs) that's true that's true that that is definitely a thing because there are there are plenty of of men that do grow up and do get past the need to mansplain but i think i'm gonna stop calling it mansplaining and start calling it boysplaining because Mm -hmm. seriously yeah so what happened was this week my roommate was babysitting her two little godsons and they are super cute, but they came over right at the time when I had a raging headache. <laughs> so that didn't help. <laughs> and that was not their fault. Um, but they're five and two and again, very, very cute, but they had the TV on and I said, Oh, is this the Lego Ninjago? And the five-year-old was like, yes. How did you know that? <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> uh i've had this exact conversation last week on twitter oh my gosh um and i was just like well i just know stuff and so then he starts quizzing me on lego ninjago and of course i don't actually know anything about lego ninjago but i also don't care about lego ninjago and as soon as i didn't know one of the answers to his questions he started explaining it all to me in explicit detail and then getting annoyed when i was clearly not listening (laughs) (laughs) and i was just like oh oh this is this is boys this is this is grown men that i interact with in real life see and then you just grab this five-year-old and say like listen to me women do not owe you their time (laughs) he'll remember that forever it's just like repeat after me women women do not owe you (laughs) their time do not quiz women about whether or not they know enough about something (laughs) exactly it was just like oh my gosh oh my gosh they're like this from birth (laughs) this is this is an inherent trait that they are born with (laughs) and somehow this this perfectly layers with my experience of like mentioning something about touch of evil yesterday and immediately i had this guy who does not follow me who i don't even know how I, I think that he has like an alert on for when someone mentions Orson Welles or something like that because Either that or like when people like I hate that Twitter has that function sorry I just totally jumped in but Twitter has that function where if so if I like something you're following me yeah so you're gonna see the people that I like even if they're people you don't give a shit about and that is ridiculous and I wish Twitter would turn it off yeah it, it results in annoying people winding up in your in your timeline or something that's yeah. like i just i just don't care but yeah this this dude just like swept in and began I, and i shouldn't have taken the bait i should have just been like 
whatever. Um, but I did, unfortunately, and immediately began like explaining how Orson Welles was a big proponent of civil rights. And I was just like, <laughs> okay, that doesn't mean that he gets a pass for casting Charlton Heston as a Mexican. Like, these are two different things. And yeah, we can talk about why Charlton Heston was cast in that part. And like, very, and you know, the issues of the way that Hollywood treats um, what they consider to be interracial relationships, it's all kinds of things. But he still cast Charlton Heston as a Mexican, so I don't give a shit if he was a proponent of civil rights. That's a good thing, but that doesn't mean that he gets a pass. Yeah, I, but I- but Well, and I, also, I mean, that whole thing started with you linking your article that you wrote for Citizen Dame, which was about TCM's yeah. reframing history, which was specifically, you were talking about the fact that they're basically just giving excuses for certain movies that they like and not really diving into the conversations. That was your whole point. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, but you're missing this. And that. It's like, no, that's not even what we're talking about. That's a separate conversation. <laughs> no, I just Good happen- day, sir. I just yeah exactly I just happened to think of Touch of Evil because it's it's because that's one of those films that it's a really great film it's very positive in a lot of ways it's actually a very positive representation particularly this this Mexican lead character but he's played by Charlton Heston yeah right and that that complicates the way that we understand that film that's like and that's okay that doesn't mean that Orson Welles was like a bad person or a bad director or anything like that but this is the kind of thing that has to be discussed you still have a white man playing a Mexican role in like and he darkens his skin and everything so it isn't even just I'm gonna pretend to be a Mexican it's like actually putting on racial racialized makeup you know and Mm -hmm. and it's just and that's okay to talk about that, God damn it. And it doesn't mean, <laughs> by acknowledging that that's a problem, it does not mean that you're propo- proposing that the movie be stripped from the record or like no yeah. one ever watches it again. In fact, that's a good reason to watch it and discuss it and dissect it for what it's doing right and what it's doing wrong. Yeah, I, I actually was thinking the other day about Touch of Evil and I was like, man, what if Ricardo Montalban had played that part? Because oh he would have been gosh. great in that role. Like I think... I Heston is an okay actor and he's he is good in that part but I was just like he would have been awesome like and mm-hmm. and he's the, really one of the few uh, uh at that period um Latinx actors that I could think of of Ricardo Montalban um there are definitely others but um but he would have been awesome and he he had at that point kind of enough star quality I think that he could have played that part yeah Anyways, yep. anyways, yeah, men don't just slide into people's mentions, especially like especially if you don't follow them. It's like this is a dude that I've never had a conversation with, and him suddenly like, who the fuck are you? Leave me alone. Mm-hmm. I wasn't talking to you. Anyways, yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, just if someone is talking about you, but they don't tag you, and you get offended by what they're saying, that's your fault for seeing it in the first place. Why are you looking for it? just saying based on nothing specific that happened at all this past week either (laughs) hmm karen all right (laughs) (laughs) just saying (laughs) so um we had a couple of things that we wanted to chat about Um, why don't you talk first about the michels versus the machines which is the game-changing groundbreaking animated feature film from netflix that's going to destroy pixar um, okay, so yeah, The Missiles uh, versus The Machines, which was just released on Netflix, I think, over the course of the past week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's produced by, um, oh, what are their names? Uh, Phil, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. I always flip their names around. Um, and it is, it's directed by Mike Rianda, and it's basically about this dysfunctional family who, from Michigan, who are driving their daughter, uh, to school in California, and while they're driving her, the, um, there's a massive robot uprising, uh, as a result, as a result, actually, of a, uh, Siri-like, character a serial like <laughs> cell phone character right who essentially like winds up taking over all of these different robots that are embedded with this chip and um trying to enslave humanity uh and the mitchells are the only thing that is standing between the robots and total world domination so that, that's the basic plot 
of course, this being an animated film, this is also um, about family and it's about friendship and it's about like people cross-generational understanding and all of that stuff. It is, it, it is absolutely hilarious. It's charming. I think that it does a really good job of um, complicating the characters. Like you get, they're very much recognizable tropes. You've got kind of the slightly disaffected older daughter who is just really looking forward to leaving home and going to college. Her, she doesn't think her dad understands her. Um, you've got the dad who's like really into um, wilderness stuff, even though he keeps on screwing it up. Um, you've got the kind of dorky little brother who's obsessed with dinosaurs and the mother who is um, very much like, I did not come from the Midwest, but I feel like that this, she is very much the quintessential Midwestern mother that we see represented on screen, um, who's very sweet and loving and kind of trying to keep the peace within the family. And then they have a, a dog who becomes a major hero of the film actually, and it's fucking hilarious. Mm -hmm. um, uh, who is a pug dog and being a pug, he looks like a loaf of bread essentially. <laughs> uh it's a charming film it's really well animated like and one of the things i liked about it is that it um it doesn't it doesn't look like pixar it doesn't look like it doesn't look like the the lego films it has uh, its own style and its own elegance and there's a lot of incorporation of real world things so real world images with the digital animation um as well as like hand-drawn things so uh, the daughter is a filmmaker and so she, the film itself incorporates all of these kind of um, cinematic tropes and images and stuff like that and, and um, hand-drawn images like her imagining what school is going to be like, her imagining what her life is going to be like uh, as they kind of cope with this very weird situation. Um, of course there's, there's a sort of a weirdness to it because it's about the damaging nature of AI in a digital film. So it has this kind of interesting tension, I think that develops because there is this, there's this approach like, well, the, some of this stuff is really good and it's helpful that it keeps us connected and, and it you know lets us um, express ourselves and be creative. On the other hand, we're really, really dependent on it. And maybe it's a bad thing that tech companies have so much power. <laughs> um, so it does a really good job at navigating that. I awesome. loved it. I loved it. Uh, the Furby jokes are absolutely as funny as everybody says they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and even if you've seen like the clips, even if you've seen the gifts or anything like that, it's they're still really on point. And I think that they're specifically for my generation because uh, every single one of us like, oh my God, the Furbies. Oh dear God, my parents had no idea what Furbies are. Oh, um, terrible. <laughs> but I was just like, yes, I always knew that Furbies were the uh, manifestation of ultimate evil. I knew it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, they are. <laughs> so it's a great film, I think. Um, is it game changing? I, you know, once again, I feel like we tend to hyperbolize anyways, but I feel like particularly over the past year, because people have been so desperate for things that kind of remind us that hey, humanity might be okay. Uh, that we've become almost obsessed with like, oh, we're going to elevate this film to the point that it, it is, you know, the greatest thing that has ever been made. It's going to be Pixar, all of this stuff. It's definitely in the running. It's a really well-made film. And like I say, it's really well animated um, in a very different way. It looks different from a lot of other uh, digital animated films that I've seen. We never hyperbolize anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> never, ever. Never, ever. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I think that it is definitely worth seeing. Um, I, I liked the fact that it was sort of, you know, it's, it's very basic in terms of the daughter and father don't understand each other and they find a way to come together and work together and find some commonality. At the same time, I felt it was a little pat. Uh, I think that there was more interesting things that they could have actually done with that, uh, that part of the story. But there are definitely moments that are, are just spectacular and very funny. So awesome. that's my feeling. Yeah, it was, I was going to watch it this week and then I've just, it's, it's, you know, it's been a week, it's been busy and I've just, yeah, haven't yet, but I intend to. So it's it looks really it. cute. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, there was a 
Twitter question that went out this week that we really liked, and we want to spend a bit of time talking about this. This is from at, I don't even know, um, xphilo L. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. Um, anyway, movie lovers, name three great filmmakers that you like a lot and who are rarely included on the top 10 directors of all time. I will start with mine, F.W. Murnau, Fritz Lang, and Clint Eastwood. So we liked this and we thought it would be fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think before we do talk about who we think should be part of that conversation, let's talk about who typically is part of that conversation <laughs> because I thought it was pretty hilarious in a cringy way to read the responses to this tweet and see a number of references to people like Alfred Hitchcock, who is on every best directors of all time list that I could find. <laughs> yeah, Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles uh-huh. uh, comes up a lot. It's like, do, do you pe- do you people only know three directors? Is that and you're like, eh, Alfred Hitchcock? He's really underrated. Like, uh-huh. I don't yeah. think so, guys. Like, no Hitchcock, one talks about that guy. Hitchcock is usually acknowledged as one of the greatest all-time filmmakers. Fritz um, Lang is on here too. It's like uh, he's on a lot of lists as well. <laughs> I th- I think that people tend to tend to focus on like one or two films. So Hitchcock becomes like, oh, it's Psycho or it's Vertigo wells it's like oh it's citizen kane and then when you actually dig into it it's like okay but what about wells's other films like uh touch of evil Mm -hmm. and that's about it he he wells is a very odd director because in terms of the films that that typically get kind of lauded usually it's citizen kane and maybe one or two others which kind of ignores this whole other swath of films that he made Um, some of which are very successful and some of which aren't in terms of what they're they're trying to do same thing with mm-hmm. Hitchcock, you get Vertigo, Psycho, Rear Window, North by Northwest, and then, but if you mention like, oh, what about, you know, Secret Agent, you're like, what the fuck is Secret Agent? <laughs> but the point is that they, they are always on the list of best directors oh, yeah. of all time, and this question is like, who, who are three great ones? We can talk about more than three, because um, there's lots more than three who aren't ever on those lists. So not the Spielbergs and the Scorseses and the Coppolas and the Godards and all those guys. It's who else, who else do we never talk about? Who's a great director. So who's one of yours? One of mine actually came up because I almost by accident, I've watched several of his films this week. Um, (laughs) Robert Wise, who Ah. directed, he directed uh, West Side Story. He directed Sound of Music. He also directed The Haunting. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is a really interesting director. And I I think that uh, it's interesting because one of the things that we often talk about is directors who are basically considered auteurs, right? So Hitchcock, Wells, um, Chaplin, uh, you know, Godard, Truffaut, et cetera. And Wise is very much outside of that because he's not an auteur. He didn't work in the same genre fairly consistently throughout his career. His films have kind of affinities with each other in terms of imagery and in terms of uh, focus and concerns, but he made a lot of different types of films. I mean, you can't find two different films than, you know, The Sound of Music and (laughs) The Haunting. Like those are two very separate movies, right? but he's a fantastic director. I also, I looked him up and I was like, I'm pretty positive he did something before he, he was a director. He edited Citizen Kane um, and was nominated. I think he was nominated for best uh, editing. I don't think that he won. Um, so this was a guy who had a long career in, in Hollywood and made a lot of really interesting films. Uh, the two films that I watched of his this week that kind of reminded me of his existence <laughs> Um, were The Setup, which is a a very tight, short boxing film starring Robert Ryan about a boxer who decides, um, about a boxer who's been set up to take a fall, but hasn't been told that he's supposed to take a fall because his manager basically assumes that he's, he's kind of down and out. He's not, he's getting old. He doesn't have any, he doesn't have much left. So his manager assumes that he's just going to get knocked out. Um, and then, of course, throughout the course of the film, he begins to, you know, have this second wind, essentially, uh, and really push to to succeed. 
And it's a brutal film, actually. Uh, I would not be surprised to learn that it, if it inspired Raging Bull, it feels like it should have. Um, so that that's one film. The other film is um, Odds Against Tomorrow, which uh, Wise directed and is this dark, intense noir um, that deals with racism and um, and kind of masculine toxic masculinity. Uh, that that sense of the male, the kind of post-war male sense of not being in control and not being male enough. Um, and it's about a, uh, a heist, a planned heist between three men um, played by Robert Ryan, Ed Bigley, and uh, Harry Belafonte. And the tension comes from the fact that the Robert Ryan character is incredibly racist. Um, <laughs> and so doesn't trust the Harry Belafonte character. And so that kind of creates this simmering tension that builds and builds throughout the film. Again, a fantastic film, really beautifully shot, beautifully edited. Uh, apparently in some of the shots, uh, Wise actually filmed using an infrared lens in order mm. to get a lot of stark contrast between the, um, the, the darks, the whites and the blacks uh, in like his scenery and things like that. And it does create this really intense kind of bleak contrast. Um, but yeah, Wise, Wise is a fascinating director because none of, many of the films just say, yeah, he directed West Side Story and Sound of Music and the haunting and curse of the cat people. Like. <laughs> yeah, it's quite the filmography. You wouldn't expect that they that those all came from the same the same person. So, um, I was doing an article, writing an article like a year or so ago, and I came across that because I don't think I'd ever realized before that those were all by the same director. Yeah. And I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> well, he he also did um, Day the Earth Stood Still just a, mm -hmm. a you know great sci-fi film but again you're like what did this none of this fits together yeah <laughs> yep um well one of mine is and i talk about her a lot and i am not sorry because she is a great director and she deserves to be recognized for it and that is penny marshall that's a good one i i, I just she's she only directed seven movies i've seen all seven of them i love all seven of them they're great films she what she did they're they have definite similarities they're not as like wildly different as the films of robert wise but um for one thing you can see her grow as a director from one film to the next it's interesting to see that but also they're movies that even when there are problematic elements in a movie like big and there are still some very timeless aspects to it too and um they're funny they're very emotional very empathetic we talk a lot about how female filmmakers just tend to make more empathetic movies um even about people that are not great people sometimes um there's just this this level of empathy that you don't necessarily get when men are directing um but I just you look at, at a movie like big and then she goes from that to and i mean jumping jack flash is also hilarious and if no if you haven't seen it or if it's been a while please rewatch it because that movie is funny and um Whoopi goldberg's great um but she goes from that to big which is this very um i mean now it's been copied so many times and used so many times that it, it um feels a little bit dated but it's so sweet and and good and it asks some really good profound questions you know and and it does it in a way that doesn't ever um lead you to a specific conclusion it's not like well this is right and that is wrong you know it's just like what would what would you do if you were a 12 year old kid and suddenly you're grown up and your mom's chasing you out of the house because she thinks you're like some crazy person and you have to go figure out your way in the world you know and um the performance that she gets out of tom hanks in that the performance she gets out of the kids in that it's 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 great and then from there she goes to awakenings which is a totally different type of movie and then a league of their own i'm still i'm never going to be okay with the fact that she was not nominated for an oscar for that um and that it didn't get like a million oscar nominations in general because that is such a, a profound film that's one of the first movies i really remember about adult women um getting along and being friends and 
um, just in in ways that we just we don't get in. Well, we we're getting more of them now, but like I mean, it came out in 1992, and there just weren't a lot of movies like that. And and what she gave us with A League of Their Own is just it's magic. It's timeless. I'm still mad that we don't have a series about these women because we should, but it's, it's, it's another one of those movies. Everyone loves to talk about how much they love a league of their own. Even men who don't necessarily watch like trick looks, you know, love a league of their own, but they just forget that it was, it was not, it didn't just fall out of the sky into this perfect movie. It was directed by a great director yeah. who knew what she was doing. So, yeah. Well, I mean, we've we've talked about it before, the way that, we, that female directors are dismissed, particularly be, particularly because someone like Penny Marshall, who directed primarily comedies, like not mm-hmm. all of her films, but so they get put into that chick flick category. Yeah. It's, oh, they're romantic comedies. Those aren't as serious. And even though you get something as iconic as A League of Their Own, which has lines that, you know, there's no crying in baseball and like mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Has, it has I think lines. there's a man in this country ain't seen your bosoms. <laughs> But those are like iconic lines. Those are ones that we use, you know, sometimes without even thinking where they're coming from. <laughs> and, and yet we still, yeah, it's it's like, oh, it directed itself, right? It's like, yeah. no, quite obviously it did not, but it's it's too light, I think, for for people to treat the director as being truly important. Right, and it drives it drives you crazy, and it's like, but look at the the caliber of stars, you know. Oh, everyone wants to make a big deal about the Avengers, and those are fun movies. But it's like, look at the caliber of people that she has in this movie, and that she puts together. Gina Davis and Tom Hanks were big stars in '92. So was Madonna; she was huge. Rosie O'Donnell was on the rise, you know, and and she just she puts these people together, puts their personalities together in a way that just works so beautifully. And it's, it's a timeless movie and yeah, she doesn't get enough credit and I hate that, but anyway, she doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't. It's true. Yeah, she she is one of those direct. You know, she kind of falls into the same category as people like Nancy Myers and Nora uh-huh. Ephron, etc. Where we talk about them, we talk about them almost with an asterisk or something that, yeah. that they're they're separate from. So you've got the great male directors. They're even separate from their male contemporaries. So people like Spielberg. Um, mm-hmm. where you're just like, okay, well, they're in this category, but Spielberg, well, he's really great. It's like, yeah, well, he made, but I mean, you look at the films that Spielberg was making, particularly at that time, it's like, those are movies for boys, right? They're they're like Indiana Jones and things like that. And it's just like, so why why would those films be greater in, at some level than A League of Their Own or Big or anything else? Yeah, exactly. It was in Seattle, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, but but I mean, and it didn't end for her with a league of their own either, because Renaissance mm-hmm. Man is an underappreciated gem of a movie. It's so good. <laughs> I think my friend and I watched that like five hundred times, you know, when it came out, and we loved it. And then her remake of The Preacher's Wife, or well, her remake of The Bishop's Wife, which was The Preacher's Wife, also that's a you know I, I get frustrated at remakes sometimes because like well why are you doing that there's no reason to but it's a really good adaptation and Whitney Houston and Denzel Washington and Courtney B. Vance are so great together and it's a good movie and and I just recently rewatched writing writing in cars with boys which was the last film that she directed and it's it's different i mean it's got some funny stuff to it and it's um you know it's definitely got some comedic moments but it's it's i don't know there's something that's like deeper and and sadder about it it's it's like you kind of laugh at the hard stuff in life and she really gets into that and um i i saw it at a time where it's like you know i was dealing with some stuff that had i had gone through with my family for years and it was just like wow it really just she tapped into those emotions so well and it just yeah it it makes me crazy that people don't appreciate her so yeah she's great yeah what's another one of yours uh, another one of mine is, and and this is one that I guess some people probably say, oh no, he's definitely one of the greats. It's like, yeah, but he, you know, we don't talk about him in the same breath as some of these other guys. Is uh, Jean Pierre Melville? Mm. <clears throat> 
who I've talked about before on this podcast. I love his films. I think I struggle to even say if there if he made a single bad film as a director. Um, and and he didn't make that many. He made uh, I think that in total he directed. Let me see. Um, he directed like fifteen films, um, but pretty much all of them are are great works of film noir. And uh, and this this was a guy who was um, he was born he was Jewish. He was born in Paris. Um, he became he was a member of the French Resistance. Uh, and then came out of that. And you can see where a lot of his crime films, uh, which he primarily made crime films, a lot of them are about betrayal and they're about not knowing who you can trust and not knowing um, who is you know, on the wrong side, not knowing who is going to give you up to the police, the authorities, et cetera. They're very um, anti-authoritarian. And he's kind of a weird figure because he once described himself as a right-wing anarchist, which <laughs> I don't even know like what any of that means. Um, <laughs> But his his films really do show this kind of sense of the the systems are very broken, um, even though everybody within his films exists within a system. This this kind of code of conduct of um, of criminals, even to the point that he made a, that he made Le Samurai, which is about a a uh, um, a hitman, but is very much about the code of conduct, basically the 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 very uh, strict requirements um, that these men have to sort of fulfill in order to be part of this life and, and the, the penalties for stepping outside of that. So he, he's a fascinating director. And I mean, you just, you've got films like, um, uh, like Leon Marin Priest, Le Doulot, which is one of my favorite film noirs, um, Le Deuxième Souf, uh, which is a, an incredibly long and incredibly brutal film noir. It's like two and a half hours long. Um, that is, again, it's about this betrayal. It's about this, uh, a criminal getting out of prison and kind of going back to his former life and who he can trust, who he can't trust, um, who is going to wind up betraying him. He did finally make uh, Army of Shadows, which is about his time in the French Resistance and is probably his bleakest film because it deals with these things like betrayal and the punishment for betrayal um, and, and how this, this was very much life or death, right? And you didn't know in, in this period in France who was a collaborator, who wasn't a collaborator, who was going to basically wind up cracking and giving you away to the authorities, which at that time was the Nazis. <clears throat> you know, his, his films are gorgeous. They're gorgeously shot. I think that his black and white films are much prettier in a lot of ways than his color ones, but he did make some very nice, nicely filmed color films. Um, and and he, he's just a really fascinating figure in this period. And I think that he made better films in uh, similar genres to people like Truffaut and Godard. I think that Melville is actually a better filmmaker across the board. He has uh, better editing, better cinematography, a more interesting kind of philosophical approach to filmmaking and um, the intensity of the performances that he gets out of his actors are just fantastic. Awesome. So. Yeah, I haven't seen enough of his films, I need to. There are a number of them that are on Criterion Channel now, definitely. Ooh. Um, I know that, because I just watched them, Le Doulot and uh, Le Deuxième Souf are both on there. I don't know what else. I think that um, one of his earliest films is The Silence of the Sea, which is from like 1949. And it's, it's actually about a, um, it's about a German soldier who winds up being um, a kind of bivouacked in the home of a, a of uh, French peasants, and they their only form of resistance is that they refuse to speak to him. So mm. they won't have a com like they won't speak, and that it's about him kind of suffering essentially uh, through this lack of, of human connection. It's intense. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. Um, another one of mine is following kind of what you were. Uh, talking about another one of mine who is someone that people talk about a lot but he never seems to be on the list and that is mel brooks that is a good one mm -hmm. that's a very good one 
Mel Brooks is freaking amazing. He's genius. His his parodies are so funny. Um and everyone loves them. Like I think three or four of his movies are on like all the greatest of all times movies lists, you know, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, but he himself never seems to end up on the best director lists. And I don't, I don't know why it's another one of those things like, oh yeah, Young Frankenstein directed itself. It just happened magically. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I love Mel Brooks. I don't have much more to say than that. I mean, he's well, great. His movies are amazing and it, hilarious. It goes, I think it goes back to that comedy thing that comedy tends yeah. to get dismissed. It's true. Um, that, you know, Mel Brooks is an auteur. He actually, when you yeah. really look at it, he often appeared in his own films. He often wrote his own films. He directed them. Um, he's got like kind of this set of actors that tend to appear in them. Like there's, he, he is an auteur. He's a, he's a comic auteur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, he's got like the Mel Brooks players, basically. Yeah, essentially, and um, and you get the same kind of humor that comes through it. Some of the, a lot of them, like you say, are parodic or satiric. A lot of them actually like get in some really great social commentary. I mm-hmm. mean, Blazing Saddles has all kinds of social commentary in it. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, so does uh, what is it? History of the World Part One, uh, mm-hmm. which we talked about. I think we talked about that last week. Actually. We did, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like I always think about, and I remember my parents being horrified by how much I enjoyed it. But um, <laughs> I was thinking about the the uh, Inquisition song. Oh, I sing that still a lot. And, and Inquisition, what, what a show! <laughs> you know, I'm wishing that you go away. <laughs> the inquisition's here and it's here to stay it's funny it is funny it's that like it's that it's very jewish humor actually because yeah. it's about death and destruction <laughs> um but kind of like oh this is pretty silly isn't it this is funny mm-hmm. um well it's like this is this is the thing it's like what taiko Ititi was doing with jojo rabbit it's like you're using comedy to skewer how terrible some of this stuff was because you look at it and you're like haha that's funny wait why am i laughing this is terrible and it's like yeah that's the point so yeah yeah but even, oh sorry you're, pun- you're punching at the authority you're punching yeah at, you're not like mocking jewish people for dying you're, right you're mocking the nazis or you're mocking the inquisition you're mocking this this authority that is destructive and oppressive and by extension all the people who were fine with it while it was happening yeah mm-hmm yeah, yeah exactly yeah but even movies like robin hood men in tights <laughs> cracks me up <laughs> like... I, I think that was probably one of i i'm trying to remember the earliest mel brooks film that the earliest mel brooks film i saw was definitely young frankenstein because mm-hmm. i saw that long before i saw any of the actual frankenstein films and it has colored <laughs> my response to them um but i think robin hood men in tights was, was close on that and there's definitely some humor in that that i did not understand oh <laughs> uh, yeah blinken what are you doing i'm guessing i guess no one's coming <laughs> i was just oh, like man. because unlike other robin hoods i can speak with an english accent <laughs> wasn't your mole on the other side i have a mole <laughs> Oh man. Oh, great movies. Great movies. <laughs> Did you have any other directors? I I had one more and I maybe he is considered to be one of the greats, uh, but I, I have to mention Amadovar, mm. who's one of my absolute favorite directors. And I always forget him when people ask me to list my favorite directors, like I'll say, oh, definitely Hitchcock. And I'll be like, who else? And I somehow I always forget Amadovar because I enjoy pretty much every one of his films. And he's made some very funny films and some very dark films and some very darkly funny films. Um, but, you know, again, he's he's got a very definite style. He, he is an auteur. Um, He's, he has very definite concerns that he's dealing with. But one of the things that I like is, is uh, something that I also like about John Waters, who also tends to, to not get the same kind of accolades that um, some of the other, quote, greats get. Um, it, it's, it's that there's this sense of humor and this sense of love 
towards towards people who are on the outskirts of society. So, and Almodovar in particular is very interested in women. He's very interested in, um, in gay men, in uh, transgender people, in um, drag queens, et cetera. And, and he wants very much to represent um, that kind of reaction to authority and the skewering of masculinity in particular and machismo in particular uh, and how damaging that kind of a culture can be, but also how there's a certain amount of freedom that can be found within these more liminal communities. And I love that. And at the same time, he can make very bizarre things very funny. You know, so many of his films are basically melodramas and you get halfway through them and you think you know what the movie's about and then someone murders their husband and sticks him in the ice chest. And it's like, okay, so now we've, <laughs> this has taken a turn. Um, there, there's some wonderful twists in Vulver, which I think is one of his funniest films and also one of his most surprising. Because mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've, have you seen Vulver? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, I think that it's, it's on HBO Max now, um, I think. But that that's one where you're like, okay, I know what this film is about. All right, so here, here we go. And then you get about half an hour in and there's a shift. And then you get another half hour into that and there's another shift. You're like, what can possibly happen next to these people? <laughs> but somehow he does make it all kind of fit together and, uh, and work despite some of the weirdnesses. Um, and then you get something like The Skin I Live In, which has been heavily criticized, probably rightfully so, but um, it's a really interesting kind of dialogue about, um, again, about that is those issues of masculinity, about sexual violence, and uh, and about gender identity. And it's, you know, I, I think that there are definitely issues with it, but it's, again, a fascinating film. And one of those where you think you know what's happening, and you think you know what to expect, and then you don't. And you kind of are reminded like, oh yeah, this is an Almodovar film. Definitely something like this was going to happen. <laughs> so yeah, I absolutely adore him. Um, I, I wish that there, similar to comedy, I wish that there was more appreciation for directors who work in animation. And yeah, um, two that really come to mind for me are john musker and ron clements who directed together and they did films a lot of stuff for disney and so like they did aladdin and the little mermaid and um moana was their most recent one um but it's like these are these are really great movies i mean there are some story elements of course that are problematic in in some of these but um and some of the casting is a little bit questionable going back to that conversation, you know, in Aladdin when you've got white people playing Arabic characters and things, but, um, but it, they're just, they, they really did such a great job of pulling in. I, I mean, these guys ushered in basically the Renaissance of Disney animation and they did that while giving us these just beautiful films and um i i think that that's just that's something else that just does not get nearly enough uh appreciation um you know it's a again we talk about how much we love those movies but we never talk about the people who make them yeah that's true that's a good point like i couldn't name for you many directors of animation mm -hmm. now that i think about it like yeah yeah i i mean i don't know who directed I don't know who directs, I mean, I know Brad Bird directs some of the Pixar films, but I don't know who directs a lot of the Pixar films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pete Docter's done a couple of them. Pete Docter, that's right, that's mm -hmm. right. Yeah, but but that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, we don't we don't think about that. We think about the the artists, we think about the people who are behind, who are doing the individual pieces of animation, but not really the person who is kind of dictating that or putting it together. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, just the, it's just as much of a real directorial effort yeah. uh, to do an animated film as it is to do a live action film because they're pulling together all kinds of and, and this is the thing is like I hope that we get to a world where costume design and production design start to be recognized in animation because mm -hmm. they do all the same work the only difference is that they don't actually have to sew the clothes 
you know, they don't actually have to build a set, but they still have to design it and make it work within the world that they're living in, you know, and, and it's just animation itself as a genre or sorry, not as a genre. It's not a genre. It's a medium. It is not recognized for, uh, for truly what it is. We just watch, you know, watch a movie like Mitchell's versus the machines and go, Oh, this is cute and clever. And we love it. But so much attention is not given to the artists that make that movie happen. Yeah, that's true. That's that's a really good point. Um, it's not. It's definitely something that I don't think about that much. And and I'm, I I tend to pay closer attention to who directs what and who writes what and things like that. And than than a lot of people that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah. So that's one of mine. So those are mine. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, you wanted to talk a little bit about Dracula adaptation. <laughs> that was another conversation that came up a bit ago or yeah, earlier so this week. This, this episode seems to be stuff we talked about on Twitter this week. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> this episode brought to you by Twitter annoying well, voice. Anyway. And, actually, and actually, good lead into this is uh, Todd Browning, who is a great director and I think doesn't get enough credit for, for what he did. And, and um, again, you know, we're talking about genre, director who worked primarily in horror, although he did make a number of um, melodramas slash action films. Uh, particularly in the silent period, but a lot of but a lot of what he's known for, he's known for Dracula, he's known for Freaks, um, he's known for some of those early uh, kind of supernatural um, supernatural horror stories that were kind of the foundations for universal horror. Um, him and James Whale kind of should bear bear some credit for that. Uh, but yeah, so uh, talking about Dracula, this this actually came up because I'm not going to quote the guy because he actually deleted the tweet. Um, <laughs> I think because people like me were like, "What the fuck's the matter with you?" Uh, but so I'm not. I will. I will not call him out or anything like that. But there there was a, a mention today or a mention yesterday actually of the fact that Chloe Zhao is directing a new Dracula film for I believe for Universal. Um, and she'd been asked about the film and had said that, you know, she was really interested in, that she was interested in vampires and that she was particularly interested in how they embody the type of other that they embody. And this was taken as being like, oh, she's just, she's bullshitting, right? She took this job for the money. And, you know, I don't know, maybe she did, but uh, I, what I took issue with was- If she did, who fucking cares? Good yeah. for her. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you do kind of go like, so are artists not supposed to make money or want to make money? I don't understand what the problem is here. Like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the idea is that, that she is not, that she doesn't actually care about vampires. She just, you know, wanted to do this film because of money, whatever. Um, I have absolutely no idea. I'm going to take her at her word and think that she actually cares about what she's, about the art that she makes. Um, yes. But what I found interesting is that, you know, what kind of got passed over in the conversation was, um, was the way that she had phrased this, this the type of other that, the, that vampires embody. And it's like, oh yeah, vampires embody the other, whatever. It's like, well, actually they do, particularly when you're talking about Dracula. Uh, and this is what I, I wanted to point out and I began thinking about again yesterday is that vampires and Dracula in particular is the foreign, is, is the foreign other, right? So the whole plot of Dracula is about this kind of dissipated aristocrat who has been alive, you know, 500 years and is coming from Transylvania, from the East um, and moving to England uh, where he hopes to kind of begin to essentially take over British society. That's the whole plot of the, of the story. That's his, that's his eventual goal. This is a really interesting story because of Dracula in this case is very much the embodiment of the foreign other. He's this invader coming, literally coming from the East. I mean, I don't know how much more obvious you can get that this is like a, a racist trope. Um, coming from the East, invading British culture and kind of undermining it from within, literally turning people into vampires. Um, and I think that we shouldn't pass over the fact that this film is being directed by a Chinese woman working in the United States. So you're talking about, so why wouldn't you be interested in this kind of t- story of the foreign other and how you can actually talk about something different? Cause a lot of the Dracula films have been made and directed and written by 
white men who are very much the ones in power in the culture. One of the interesting things with Dracula is that he's, um, he's, he's an outsider. He's the one who is out of power. He had power once and then he lost it and he's using kind of his, this infiltration, right? And I'm not at all saying that the book itself is particularly progressive, it isn't, but it's really kind of revealing the anxieties of the culture. And it's this anxiety about this invader who is going to come and destroy society from within. And what Dracula winds up doing is he undermines the entire structure of British society. That's why he's such a threat. So to have an outsider per se, right, um, so to speak, talking about that and actually making a film about that, I think it's a fascinating approach. Mm -hmm. um, and and I don't know why you would like ignore that element. Um, the other element of vampires is often that they're uh, that they're very often typed as queer. Um, they're 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 bisexual. They're omnisexual. They are not um, sexual in the same way that we tend to associate with with binary sexuality. So they're also a threat to heterosexuality. They're a threat to normality. Um, in in view of the of the way that is defined by the white mainstream oh. so i just wanted to say that out loud <laughs> i'm glad you did thank you <laughs> so i am really looking forward to chloe Zhao's whatever she wants to do with dracula i'm going to be fascinated <laughs> by and i also hope that karen kusama is still making hers because i want to see that as well mm -hmm. yeah so yeah the thing my understanding of what universal is doing now is that they, they haven't actually abandoned the dark universe they just went in a different direction with it so um they're not gonna do like all the the stuff they had javier bardem was gonna play frankenstein and i can't remember who else like they they just basically didn't go with that original one that they were gonna do and so they're still gonna remake their horror their universal monster movies but um with the success of Invisible Man last year, now they're going in kind of this different way. So it's going to be, I don't think they'll be connected at all, but they're still going to do like modernized versions of them. So I'm, I'm interested in it. I'm really excited to see what Chloe has to, has to say about it. Well, I think that it's a great idea because the Invisible Man worked so well with using the, the concept and the tropes. Mm -hmm. and doing its own thing with it and you know making it this this interrogation of, of of male violence and um and trauma and all of that stuff so if you could do that also with dracula or the wolfman um or frankenstein like awesome go for it yeah yeah so creature from the black lagoon definitely needs to be dealt with higher yes <laughs> yeah definitely. he'd love to do it mm-hmm Yep. And no, he didn't already do it. That's not The Shape of Water. It's inspired by it, but it is not the movie. I swear if one more person tries to tell me that. Anyway. Um, yeah. So what else have you been watching this week? I know you mentioned a few things that you've seen, but uh, that's actually primarily what I've been watching. Um, okay. The the other oh the other one that I didn't get a chance to talk about the last time we discussed this was the Scarlet Empress, which uh, I think has now gone off of Criterion Channel, which is a shame. But I'm certain it'll come back. And at any point, please, people, watch this movie. It is batshit. Like <laughs> I, it's it's I I struggle to say that it's a good film, but I love it because you've got Marlena Dietrich playing Catherine the Great as like initially this very innocent ingenue, which I'm sorry, Marlena Dietrich at the age of 35, you are not an innocent ingenue. I don't know <laughs> how, like you can't sell that. Mm -hmm. But when she finally becomes the world weary woman, like she's fantastic. Um, and the set design of this film is the craziest, most terrifying thing I have ever seen. It is <laughs> like, I, I mean, I just go and look at stills of this of the of the scarlet empress because every single shot is fucking weird it's just weird they've got like bizarre statues running throughout this whole this whole like kind of castle but not really like we never seem to go outside 
Um, there's, there's a lot of people, but there's also no people. You're like, where do these people live? How did these people exist <laughs> in this context? No wonder the Russian monarchy is in danger because you people are so screwed up. You have to live in all of this. Like you've got doors that you can't open up with other than like 10 people to open them. <laughs> it's wild. Like it is one of the weirdest fucking movies I have seen and I loved it. <laughs> awesome. That sounds that sounds great. That's my review. Um thank you. I let's see, what did I watch this week? I mean, I had to watch Moonstruck in honor of Olympia Dukakis and oh, yes. I love that movie so much. My uh my roommate had never seen it before. And I just started it and she comes in she's just like, what is this? And I was like, you've never seen Moonstruck? And she, I know I put this on Twitter, but she was just like, "Uh oh, am I in trouble? And I was like, no, (laughs) I'm so excited for you to experience this for the very first time. And I get to be here for it. Sit down. (laughs) And so she did. And she watched it with me and she loved it. And it was great. And I knew she would love it because it's a wonderful movie. So, uh, yeah. Um, and then I, oh, yesterday I was watching Mutiny on the Bounty, the 1935 Best Picture winner, and Mm. we are having some work done on our house and the contractor comes in and he's just like, is that Mutiny on the Bounty? And I was just like, what? You know this movie? (laughs) I was so shocked. He's like, yeah, Clark Gable, right? And I was just like, what? (laughs) And I just, it made me happy. I loved that. So, um, Yeah. I, I I like to put on stuff like that while I'm working because I can kind of watch, but I don't have to pay strict attention because I've seen it, you know. So. Is is that the one with Clark Gable and Charles Lawton? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good movie. Oh, and then this week for the first time, I watched the 1980s movie, The Stepfather, because <laughs> I just felt like watching a scary movie. That wasn't it. <laughs> that movie is not scary at all i was like what (laughs) it's not very bloody either i was really surprised um i'd heard a lot about that but it was okay it was it was entertaining but it was definitely not a scary movie (laughs) i i actually started watching prom night the other day um which i haven't finished yet so like i just got about half an hour into it so nothing has nothing particularly scary has actually happened but it's all the like this isn't a ha- this isn't Halloween, but it definitely is movie. Um, but it's it's entertaining so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one's that one's a fun one. So, anything else? I think that that's it. That's what yeah. I've been watching this week. It's been I'm so tired. I'm like constantly yeah. tired. Yep, I am too, and I've had a lovely amazing headache to go along with it it's been great so So, yeah oh well it's just how it is this is my life now (laughs) so all right well i think that's going to wrap things up then for this week and uh we would love to know what you're watching so reach out to us and let us know we would like to thank our patrons you are all amazing and we we just really appreciate how much you support the show and uh, especially we want to shout out Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for your support, which I think I just said like three times. I'm tired and I have a headache, which I've also said like three times in the last two minutes. But anyway, <laughs> um, if you would like to join their number and become a patron yourself, that's patreon.com slash citizen dame. And we did have, I know we, we always promise that we're going to have bonus content and then we did that. And then we took a little bit of time away because, you know, I was moving and stuff and, but we're back on track. So we'll be putting up this week, we'll be putting up our um, options for our May bonus episode. So be looking for that. So you can vote on that because um, patrons get to listen to, to our bonuses. Um, if you would like to kick in a couple of bucks, that's co-fi.com slash citizen dame. And we appreciate your support there as well. We do have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. You can get masks and t-shirts and things. We're still working on that redesign of the logo. Like I said, I've been moving and stuff. Lots of excuses and very little time, but we're getting there. 
Um, but you can also reach out to us and and find us on the web and and be polite and and cordial on social media when you talk to us. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. We have our email, citizendamepod at gmail.com and our website, citizendamepod.com, where we've got some new stuff that's coming your way very, very soon. And we are getting back on track with those five stew, I promise. You can reach out to us individually as well if you'd like to do that. Lauren, where are you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Bye. Inquisition. Let's begin the Inquisition. Look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. We're gonna teach them wrong from right. We're gonna help them see the light and make an offer that they can't refuse. That the Jews just can't refuse. Confess. Don't be boring. Say yes. Don't be dull. A fact. You're ignoring. It's better to lose your skull cap than your skull. Oh, you're gavald. The Inquisition. What a show. The Inquisition. Here we go. We know you're wishing that we'd go away. But the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay.